The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon. Countdown. Number 30. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. There's much discussion about uh, what the forgiveness of student debt. Uh, so dem- some Democrats have called for it. President Biden has said he's open to the idea. And uh, there's no doubt that paying for college has become a major concern for parents and students. And Americans now owe about $1.7 trillion in student debt. That has ballooned over the last uh, decades. With me right now to give us some idea of how this problem uh, developed, uh, I've asked Dr. Richard Vetter. Uh, to join us. He's a distinguished professor of economics emeritus at Ohio University, and he's been writing on issues of higher education for more than 60 years. He's the author of Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America, and his writings can be found at the Independent Institute. Dr. Vetter, thank you for taking the time to be with me. I'm delighted. You, you began writing on higher education while I, I, I remember because I was in high school at the time, and uh, I was the first one in my family to get a college diploma. Uh, it wasn't assumed uh, that everybody would go to college then. Uh, since 1960s, early 60s, it's become almost expected that uh, everybody's going to be going to college in some way. Can you explain how that expectation developed well, that's a good question. Uh, it, it has been clear for years that graduates of colleges generally have fared pretty well on average in the real world uh, in terms of getting a job, uh, retaining a job, keeping employed, uh, living uh, a good life. Uh, uh, and so... Uh, College attending college became an aspiration that has been for decades, mm-hmm. and it kept growing. And so, every it became more and more politically popular to say, "Gee, we should uh, uh, support people going to college." The, after World War II, in fact, before the war, World War II was even over, we passed what's been called the GI Bill. Right. Uh, massive effort to help soldiers uh, become educated after college. And it's grown ever since then, uh, and uh, it, it continues to grow. It used to be going to college was kind of a distinctive thing. You know, if you were a college graduate, wow, you yeah. know, you're, you're, you're special. <laughs> right. That's no longer the case. And so that has uh, caused some reconsideration by many uh, young people about, Really, is it worth going to college? Right. Maybe we ought to do something else. So I think there is a, a, a changing attitudes that are beginning to develop. When I uh, graduated from college, uh, I had some national defense student loans uh, that I think with the interest on it was 2 or 3%. I mean, it was low. And yeah. my wife and I took us two years. It was easy to, to, to pay those loans off. Um, I was very grateful. They helped out a lot. I worked through college, so it was fine. It wasn't it wasn't burdensome. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And in fact, uh, I happened, my my college education served me well. It it was very useful. Same thing with my wife. Um, but student debt 
has just skyrocketed. What led to that? It's it can't be two to three percent loans. <laughs> what what no. else? What happened? Well, it's ironic. The very existence of these loans, which was designed, or which are, I suppose, originally designed to make it easier to go to college, less burdensome financially to go to college, has had exactly the opposite effect yep. than what was anticipated. Exactly the opposite. I call it the law of unintended consequences. Uh, uh, what happened and uh, was that when we start the loan program started getting really big, which was not came came after the uh, National Defense Education Act, which was a pioneering legislation and was pretty well received, by the way, the the, the, the loans that you received, mm-hmm. but. Starting in the uh, starting in the mid to late sixties, but especially with Jimmy Carter in the late seventies, we enormously expanded these programs. We made uh, a larger percentage of Americans eligible for the loans. We promoted the loans more. We almost made it sound like you really would be a fool if you didn't take out one of these right. loans. And what happened? Well, the price of college, which had been sort of Moving up a little bit every year, or maybe one percent a year, uh, adjusting for inflation a little bit every year, but less than people's incomes were going up in the, those days. Uh, college is actually becoming easier to pay for, uh, say in 1970 than it was in 1950 or something like that. So uh, that was the trend before, but now suddenly. Uh, beginning in the 70s up to almost now, until a few years ago, we've had the prices of colleges, uh, tuition fees, going up much, much more, uh, 3% a year uh, after the, uh, above the overall inflation rate, above the growth in our incomes. So college has become less affordable. And the question, of course, is, well, why is this so? Why, why was inflation modest way back when, when you were going to school and other people were going to school way back in the 1940s and 50s and, and like that? Why has it now uh, become much greater? Well, uh, Education Secretary Bill Bennett, who was the Secretary of Education in the 70s, uh, uh, or actually early 80s, right after the Department of Education was created, uh, Bill Bennett uh, said, well, it's clear the student loan program has caused tuition inflation yep. because what did colleges do? They said, oh, kids can now afford to go to college. They'll just borrow the money. Yeah. We'll just raise, instead of raising tuition 2 3%, we'll raise it 5 or 6%. Right. And, and we'll do this year in, year out. And they did throughout the 80s, the 90s, and the early parts of the first two decades of this this century. So college went from becoming more affordable to becoming less affordable, and people started running up these massive debts. And during that time, did services to students increase? In other words, were students getting a better education for all this increased tuition? Well, that is controversial. It's, it's ironic. It's a funny question in a way because you would think colleges who are in the knowledge business, right. in the information business, 
you think the one thing they would know the most about is about their own students, about their own product. Is it better today than it was, say, 25, 50 years ago? And I honestly, and I, as you pointed out, I've, I've been in higher education forever. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, for six decades, I started college in the 50s. Uh, the, uh, we don't know the answer to that question definitively, but uh, the evidence that I've gathered and others have gathered suggests that college students today aren't learning more than they were a generation or two ago. They have a little bit nicer amenities. They have nicer dormitories. Yep. They, uh, they're air-conditioned. They didn't used to be air-conditioned, mm-hmm. et uh, Sometimes they have nice atriums and some of the classroom buildings and kind of yuppie stuff and uh, 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 nice uh, recreational facilities and uh, what have you, the uh, climbing walls and uh, things like that. Lazy Rivers is the uh, one now that's kind of cool. Uh, the, they have these long swimming pools that kids can lay in rafts and, oh. and <laughs> drink, beer, drink beer and contemplate life. Uh, <laughs> or, or whatever happens. Uh, uh, so, but basically, I don't think... The quality of education has really improved. And the data that I have been able to ascertain suggests they're not working as hard because they don't have to because of great inflation. Uh, The typical college student today, the data show, is is the student is in class or studying or writing papers, whatnot, maybe 27, 28 hours a week. Back when I went to school and when you apparently went to school, it was more like 40 hours a week or or more. So they're working less uh, for higher grades, much higher grades than uh, two decades ago or four decades or six decades ago. And so they're doing uh, less for more. And uh, uh, that's the way it is. And so... Are they, is it a worthwhile proposition now? Well, you know, college is partly about learning and uh, preparing for a vocation, but it's also a socialization experience. And maybe as a socialization experience, that is having fun, college is as good as ever, maybe better than ever. They got more free time. They, you don't have to work as hard. <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, it, it's not bad in that respect, but is it really serving a national need? Uh, 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 you know, I like to go on cruises, but is that essential for, uh, you know, the maintenance of life in America and the quality <laughs> of life? No, not really. So the government doesn't uh, give you subsidies to go on cruises. But going to school is a little bit like cruising through life. I hadn't thought of this until today. <laughs> This, this is a good one, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so we go on cruises. Uh, they're land cruises uh, you know, with the lazy rivers thrown in. Uh, but uh, it's not uh, as uh, uh, it's not a good investment, and, and so forth. And so this, this notion that. The student loan program uh, is is something that has saved America. It's just wrong. I mean, it's it's made college more expensive. It's led to this massive debt increase. 
it's led to a trillion point one point seven trillion dollars in debt, um, uh, etc. And ironically, the people that are who have the largest amount of that debt now, the biggest loans, are not poverty-stricken people who are making $30,000 a year or so. A lot of them, uh, the big loans, and a lot, a large portion of this debt is held by uh, actually pretty affluent people who uh, are graduate students, or were graduates. Yeah, yeah. And... and you know they're uh, got their uh, MBAs from Harvard, making one hundred and fifty thousand a year. Now, yeah, yeah. Doctor Vetter, can you stay with me a little longer? Uh, I yeah, I, I guess that's the trouble with me. I'm a professor. I talk forever. Yeah, sure. <laughs> why not? I'll talk for a few, a few okay. more minutes. I, 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 okay, hold up. We'll be back with you in just a moment. The best, 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 best. of Cresta in the afternoon. Countdown. Number 30. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Richard Vetter. He is a distinguished professor of economics emeritus at Ohio University. And he's been writing on issues of higher education for more than 60 years. Our, our discussion today occasioned by the national discussion debate over forgiving student uh, loan, student debt. Uh, and, uh, Dr. Vetter, I wanted to ask, is there a danger, you know, I mean, you have all kinds of, you have people like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, who were very big on forgiving student debt. Uh, President Biden says he's open to some sort of plan. I'm not sure what plan is actually ever going to be proposed, but I wanted to ask you a more general question about forgiving uh, student loan debt. Does that create what economists have called a moral hazard, that it, it uh, by protecting one from the consequences of bad decisions, uh, you're actually creating incentives to further bad decisions? Oh, I absolutely think that is the case. It's a brilliant question. Uh, you should have been a college professor. <laughs> uh, 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 no. And, and in, indeed, I think people are trying to eliminate inequities or unfairness. Uh, I think one of the greatest unfairnesses in the world is to have a large body, a number of students, by a large number, I mean tens of millions, who pay off their loans, who work hard, sacrifice after college, uh, put away maybe 10, 15% of their income to pay off these loans and sometimes take a decade or more to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they are, the, the, the people have done that. If we forgive loans for a, a body of people, say $50,000 in loans, as uh, some have suggested, uh, what we're doing is saying to, to those people, ha, you're, you're, uh, we're going to let you off. We're not going to make you sacrifice and pay off your loan. You, the ones who uh, played by the rules and did what they were supposed to and paid off their debts and uh, sacrificed and then take fancy vacations and uh, trips and so forth, uh, those people, uh, they're suckers. Uh, they paid off their debt, and they didn't have to. They could have yeah. just not paid them off, and uh, Biden would uh, let them off. I think that's a very bad signal. I think it's unfair. I think it's inequitable. 
But I, I think worst of all, it, 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 it sends a very bad message to people and sort of uh, 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 is against the rule of law. I mean, yeah. in effect, people are modeling an agreement they made. Um, uh, the the, the, the large prayer talks about forgive us our debts, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, the, I don't think it came down to that Jesus was on the side of... Uh, uh, loan forgiveness. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I'm with you there. I, I don't think that's what he had in mind. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let me let me ask about again the growth of colleges and universities and um, in the faculty. Um, I I have a number of friends who are college professors, and they. They don't feel they don't feel as though they have the same kind of uh, I don't know uh, moral influence uh, within the universities that they're associated with in colleges that uh, the universities are being run by executives with a large bureaucracy and the professors are not treated as though they're. Entirely essential to the operation uh, is. That, have you seen that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's a very uh, a good description of what's going on. Now, it does vary from institution to institution. As the different schools have different, uh, let's call it, academic cultures. But on the whole, the professors and uh, are no longer the centerpiece of university decision making. Uh, to this, at least to the same extent they were, say, a half century ago. Mm-hmm. And, they, and you hit the nail on the head. A big reason for that is there's been a massive growth in an administra- in administrative bureaucracy at colleges. Some of it are is uh, uh, sort of ru- in the routine areas and public relations, uh, fundraising and um, computer support and so on. But some of it is uh, in these sort of newly woke areas, uh, such as diversity and inclusion. Right. Uh, I, I believe the University of Michigan uh, has about 140, 150 people who are considered diversity, diversity and inclusion bureaucrats. Wow. And aside from the fact that they're making about $20 million dollars, in, in wages and salaries and other expenses associated with them, which is a lot of money, uh, is that they're sort of crowding out the influence of the faculty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the impression I, I have, too, uh, from talking uh, to people. Uh, and, and how has the, has the elevation of uh, university sports impacted the faculty? Um, it's very enormously uh, between schools. Uh, there's um, quite a bit of variation in that across the board. Okay. I think on the whole, it has been another crowding out factor. At some schools, it's become an expensive factor. The school that I teach at, well, we subsidize in athletics to over $20 million a year. Uh, you know, in a budget of maybe six hundred million total, uh, that's real money. I mean, that's not inconsequential. Right. Uh, and um, so, at some schools, that's the problem. 
And um, there has also been, I think, a decline in uh, standards. Uh, athletes are sometimes held to a different standard yeah. level. And uh, I, I think that the, that has uh, had a negative effect on the academy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me thank you for taking the time uh, to be with me today. It's been greatly helpful and clarified my thinking, and uh, I hope we can call on you again. Please do. I enjoy this immensely. I uh, I, have, I even called friends of mine in the Ann Arbor area who are former students and said, listen to this. You know? <laughs> good. <laughs> and, and, and they said they would. So, Very good. Uh, thanks so much. Okay. Dr. Okay. Vetter, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, Dr. Richard Vetter, this again. I was reading over articles that he's written, um, and he's been so insightful. I, I love the the idea that he's been at work in this field for decades, and so he's actually lived through the changes in university life that many of us sense, but don't quite know how to articulate. He, he's able to do that. And, uh, in fact, there's a piece that he wrote. Um, let me just pull it out here if I can find it. I was looking at it earlier today. Um, I think I think you're able to get it. I think the Independent Institute has it. Uh, it's called a Farewell Assessment, Higher Education After Six Decades. I think it was originally published in Forbes uh, lat, uh, late last year. But he, there are a number of points that he makes here. Uh, he, he just ticks it off, one right after another. Uh, what he's seen. Um, he says, first of all, that higher education has gone from being a wildly popular and rapidly growing sector of the economy to being one now perceived as stagnant or declining with sharply diminished public support. Uh, he mentions around 1960, politicians won votes by promise to, to expand state universities and increase their funding. That's rarely the case today. I, th- I think this is interesting because uh, I went to a state, Michigan State University in the 1970s. So this is 10 years after they decided to begin channeling uh, money to state universities, increasing their funding. He says that's rarely the case today. In the 1960s, the proportion of Americans in college doubled. Now think about that. Uh, in the last decade, though, it's declined. So this, is, this itself is interesting for the future of higher education. Uh, Secondly, the non-teaching dimensions of higher education have become much more important. Look at research. Uh, Teaching loads fell sharply. Publishing expectations grew sharply after the 1960s. You know, this became, you know, college professors used to joke, I suppose they still do, that uh, their life is publish or perish. But, uh, you know, if you're going to do a lot of research and publication, well, then it's going to be difficult to maintain the same kind of teaching load uh, that you may have originally uh, uh, started in your early years of your uh, uh, professorship or seeking uh, professorship. In recent years, he writes, this trend peaked, um, and there is growing realization that diminishing returns are quite present in research endeavors. Teaching loads are creeping up again at some schools. And then this is one that I found especially interesting. We expect less of our college students, but try to reward them more. Now, I hadn't articulated it that way, but I 
Yeah, it seems that way. We expect less, but we reward them more. Research suggests college students on average spend one-third less time on studies than in 1960, but earn much higher grades. It's a case of learning less, although at a much higher cost, than in the 1960s. I was talking with uh, Brian, Frank Shanley, who's executive producer of this program. I was talking with him earlier today uh, how my first – I had a, a remarkable revelation uh, back in – must have been 1986 because I had just begun pastoring a church, and I was called upon to do some counseling for uh, some people who were not members of the church but were on the periphery of our kind of social network. And one of the women I had to deal with had just received a Ph.D., in psychology, uh, I don't recall what her dissertation was in. Um, she was from Wayne State, Wayne State University. Now, this was an earned doctorate, not an honorary doctorate. This was an earned doctorate, and she was relatively young, a little older than I was. Um, and I have to say, she was unfamiliar with certain aspects of modern psychology that I would have thought was really basic basic material. Uh, that was one of my cognates when I was in college. So I had some familiarity with the field. And being a pastor and doing pastoral counseling, I tried to stay up on, you know, what was going on in the world of uh, therapy and counseling anyways. And she did not have—often didn't have a clue. It was the first time it had hit me that somebody can actually go through a program— at a respected university and go to the highest level. Now, there must, may have been postdoctoral programs as well, but, you know, at that time I'm thinking a doctor is about as high as you would go in this field. And you can come away from it not well, not really being a master in your own field. Uh, you know, just one of those, that's a long time ago. It's one particular incident. I've seen it since, but that was the first time it really hit me. That uh, and my guess is that a significant amount of money was spent uh, getting that degree. Uh, he also writes that there's a growing sense of institutional inequality in higher education, which I'm not going to try to go further with because I won't be able to uh, elaborate on it in the time that remains. But we're going to return to this question in the future, and we're going to look at it too in terms of Catholic universities. And uh, again, you'll see why. Varying experiences uh, at different Catholic universities. Uh, what you see at uh, Ave Maria University may be quite different than what you say at Notre Dame, for instance. Be back in just a minute. 